This is John Halsman, and welcome to The Culture, when we look at the things in our newsletter for the week that really matter. And today we're going to look at the last part of our trip through 60s albums of albums you must listen to before you die, the eponymous album by The Doors, uh, which came out of absolutely nowhere and is one of the best debut albums ever made, and certainly unlike some of the other bands' work, stands the test of time. I am just back from five glorious sun-dappled days in Ischia, an island in the Bay of Naples, and I'm glad to be back with you and give you our little local newspaper to the world. I'm delighted to finish this cultural section on albums. We will return to albums as we go, but I think we'll probably do some literature after this uh, for next Tuesday. And tomorrow, we get back to the flagship around the world in 20 minutes. Um, following the saga of Forever Changes came Jim Morrison and the Doors, Arthur Lee's stablemates at Electra Records, who were perhaps the fitting and illogical conclusion to the California band's experiments with freedoms in the 1960s. For despite eye-catching theatrics and a genuinely enigmatic frontman, the Doors never really recaptured the magic of their first self-titled album, again, one of the best debut albums of all time. Songs such as Break On Through, Crystal Ship, Take It As It Comes, which was a tribute to the Maharishi, and the Oedipal drama The End, were both the height of the band's self-conscious experimentation, as well as indicators of the intellectual and anarchic excess that would lead to their rapid decline. Indeed, every album thereafter was just slightly less great than the one before, until L.A. Woman, at the end, when the Doors put a fitting exclamation point on their creative work. But this put Morrison and the freedom movement on a glide path to artistic and personal decay. As probably the most overtly sexual band of their time, before the Rolling Stones really got out there, Morrison, like, I got, like a lot of good-looking white frontmen, had the sense to pick up the advantages of pinching lyrical and vocal tropes from great African-American blues singers. In many ways, for all the psychedelia and high intellectualism of the Doors, they're basically a blues band, and as Morrison lost his hippie Dionysus sheen, they became more and more a blues band, until hitting artistic pay dirt again at the end with L.A. Woman, which is essentially a blues record. What Morrison added to the standard mix, beyond his undeniable charisma, was the exciting hint that somehow there was something philosophically and cosmically significant about trying to get a girl out of her clothes. And of course, for all his reading of the French structuralist and European existentialists, there wasn't. Morrison was good at railing at the weaknesses of late 60s American culture. Like most of the hippie movement, he was far less adept at putting something in its place. The whole thing, both the band and the counterculture, began to collapse as anarchy as an idea became merely an apologia for hedonism and the resulting tragedies and not the clarion call of a movement ready to storm the establishment bastions. For freedom without moderation rather quickly becomes a form of self-defeating narcissism. Aesthetic decline was not far behind. Morrison's death by probable heroin overdose in Paris 50 years ago was the end of the party. Part of the movement's problem was that, as is the case with our far protagonists, everyone meant rather different things by freedom. For Brian, it was about controlling his own personal creativity. For John, it centered on a more unfettered sexuality. For Arthur, the personal taking center stage over social and political mind control. And for Jim, the triumph of, as the 19th century French nihilist he so liked put it, 
terrible, total nothingism. Yet these very real struggles are not primarily about the same thing. This intellectual incoherence, this very American confusion of thinking that everyone innately meant the same thing when the word freedom was thrown forth as a battle cry, doomed the more messianic vision of the concept in the 1960s to failure. For neither any of our protagonists personally nor the creed of freedom they, they espoused proved sustainable. This was not due to bad luck or even the beguiling myth of rock stars doomed sage. Rather, their tragic stories flow directly out of the contradictions that lay at the heart of what they believed and the actions that flowed from their philosophy. The concept of freedom is precious beyond rubies. I'm a libertarian and believe in it fervently in a way that most people don't. It can be used, as is in the case of each of the four, to create masterpieces. But to pretend that it has no cost or that other values like moderation, prudence, inner peace, and security are not sacrificed along the way is to be hopelessly naive. For Brian, freedom brought unbearable pressures that led to drug-induced psychosis. For John, it led to the collective destruction of his band, his marriage, his family, and ultimately himself. For Arthur, it led to an agonizing drug-fueled decline. And for Jim, it led to his death. The ancients understood this dynamic very well, adhering to the view that all attributes are Janus-faced, having creative and destructive properties, they felt that any value believed in to the exclusion of all others quickly becomes a faux religion, a god whose powers will turn on its worshippers, resulting in madness and death once moderation is lost. But if the 60s did not produce the greatest generation in American history, nor did the baby boomers questing after some purer form of freedom lead to, lead to the decline and fall of Western civilization either. The excesses of Morrison and company certainly did lead to a social and political backlash and is part of the explanation for the rise of the political right in the wake of their utopian failures. But nor did they strive entirely in vain either. Creative freedom is now more prized than it was before the 60s era. Sexual freedom was dramatically extended in what has always been a puritanical country. The personal freedom Arthur cherished is now fought for both by the American left as well as the Jeffersonian and libertarian right. And while Morrison would typically say the American lifestyle remains provincial and unenlightened, it is a charge certainly open to question in a world full of Persian ayatollahs, Chinese communists, and Al-Qaeda fanatics everywhere. Rather, the soft power generated by the attractiveness of American society is perhaps our last best foreign policy tool. However, it remains easy to be unkind to the children of the 60s, for their gigantic steps forward were balanced all too often by personal and collective hedonism, narcissism, irresponsibility, and a pretentious serial unseriousness which blighted accomplishments and marred the social experiment then going on around the idea of freedom, leading to its demise, as well as the profound political and social back backlash that found its ultimate expression in Reaganism. But for all its obvious and many flaws, this beguiling vision of a freedom without limits binds the rest of us to this long ago decade of the 1960s and is the thread propelling the narrative of these four albums we've looked at. In upholding the doctrine of freedom, the children of the 60s accomplished much. Civil rights, women's rights, the ending of a disastrous war, as well as some of the greatest music ever created, all flowed naturally from the expansion of freedom that the decade made such a beguiling possibility. And this is the context in which we really have to look at 
The Doors. Um, again, it's probably one of the greatest debut albums ever. They never got any better, and as I said, every album thereafter was slightly worse, with Strange Days following in 1967. Uh, the Doors album, the first Doors album, came out in January 67. Strange Days came out later in that year. Still a fine album. Waiting for the Sun, still a good album. Before they hit their dark patch with Soft Parade, Morrison Hotel, before pulling it together again with L.A. Woman at the end. But the real strength of this album, what bookends it, are the two long jams. Light My Fire, which in its shortened version became a number one record in the United States, and the end, the Oedipal trauma, the end, which fittingly ended the album. And these two long jams really were the doors at their best. Again, the long jam of Light My Fire was never going to make it onto the singles chart. Sir Jack Holtzman of Electra Records and the band, along with Paul Rothschild, who was uh, Arthur Lee's producer, as well as that of the doors, decided to cut out the middle instrumental se section, fantastic though it is, and that shortened version of the first song that Robbie Krieger, the guitarist, ever wrote went to number one, while the Doors album itself in 1967 stayed at number two, stubbornly never getting by the Beatles' masterpiece, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but being the best-selling of all the Doors albums, selling a whopping 13 million copies and becoming part of the zeitgeist right away and off, off the chart. The Doors... Uh, like Arthur Lee, had been an up-and-coming band on the Hollywood Sunset Strip, these L.A. bands we're looking at, uh, at the London Fog and then more famously the Whiskey A Go-Go. Arthur Lee had championed their early work, seeing Morrison as a rival, but also as somebody worth signing, and so he got Jack Holtzman, head of Electra Records, and Paul Rothschild to go down to the Whiskey A Go-Go and listen to them. Ironically, they listened to them at the time that Morrison showed up tripping on LSD, performing the end in such a vulgar fashion, according to the owner of the Whiskey A Go-Go, that they got fired, but they managed to get through enough of the online material that Holtzman took them on the spot. And the Doors album was recorded between August 1966 and October, when recording went very smooth, smoothly, as Rothschild later said. It was really just doing their live set at the time, and so all the material was already there. The lion's share written by Morrison, as was always the case, the Doors up until this time just put the Doors down for all their records. But Robbie Krieger, ironically, was to write the band's greatest selling hit, Light My Fire, uh, inspired by Morrison, as he said, to write about snakes and shamans and stuff, as he somewhat amusingly put it. And this first record of Krieger, this went to number one, where the overall album is still very much dominated by Morrison, including The End, which was really one of his masterpieces. Um, it's one of the greatest psychedelic records ever made, primarily because, as was true with Arthur Lee, it's not just about psychedelia, but it's an interesting fusion of blues above all, classical jazz, bossa nova influences in Densmore's drumming. They're all there, and it's this mix that makes the psychedelia much stronger than just the kind of papier-mâché psychedelia peddling around at the time, think the strawberry alarm clocks, incense, and peppermints. Uh, the unique members of the band, all of whom were first-rate musicians, is interesting. Morrison, for all his incredible charisma, later on said rightly that he was a lot like a psychedelic Frank Sinatra. He was a crooner, his sense of timing, his sense of drama, his sense of working with the other musicians, very in line with what Sinatra did, was his great strength. He wasn't innately a great singer any more than Sinatra was a better singer than some of the people of the 50s, who he certainly 
surpassed, but it was this professional musicianship for all his follies that set Morrison apart in the psychedelic world and his sense of crooning, his sense of timing to the work that was going on. Beneath him, Ray Manzarek, one of the great players of the era, um, played the organ and the keyboard, one hand on East, and in, uniquely for the Doors, they had no bass player that, that Manzarek, while he was playing the organ, which gives the Doors music a carnivalesque, unfettered quality, utterly unique to them, he would also do the bass line, and this lack of a bass player made the Doors sound utterly unique, and Manzarek voted one of the, rightly, one of the great musicians of the era. Also, Robbie Krieger, who as Morrison himself said, was probably the most underrated main guitarist in rock, perhaps other than George Harrison at the time, a flamenco-influenced uh, blues and jazz freak. Um, he was technically brilliant and would allow that this tightness of Manzarek, Densmore, uh, and Krieger would allow Morrison to go on his flights of fancy because the basic playing and instrumentalization is so incredibly solid. And again, Krieger is an incredibly, Morrison's right, an incredibly, incredibly underrated guitar player. Um, and also a very good writer, as Light My Fire attests to. He was the second writer in the band and an underrated songwriter as well. And then John Densmore, who's jazzy drumming. You really see on things like Break On Through, where he takes the bossa nova parts so popular at the time and fuses it with Morrison's intellectualism and the psychedelia in an utterly unique and yet tight way. And, and Densmore, incredibly good drummer um, and utterly necessary for the Doors sound. And so having this incredible band, often overshadowed by Morrison's excesses as well as his charisma, uh, one shouldn't undersell the band. This was an incredibly tight band. And in terms of playing person for person, it's hard to think of a band other than perhaps the Beatles who were as good musicians as the Doors were at the time. Um, one of the things that you see, though, again, are the differences in sound. The Alabama song is Morrison's take on Bertolt Brecht, the great uh, playwright of the Weimar Germany era. And so he takes one of his songs um, and makes that work. On the other hand, you have 20th Century Fox, which is a tribute to Manzarek's wife, Dorothy Fujikawa, a clever play on words. You have Break On Through showing Morrison's uh, pretensions as well as his intellectual leanings that they were going to break on through to some sort of new era, that the music wasn't just to make money, to be commercial, but was to intellectually and philosophically break on through in the way that French romantic poets such as Rambeau did and that Morrison liked so much, that his efforts were truly ambitious, a thing you don't see in much in pop music anymore, to intellectually help you break on through to a new era. And that's what Morrison was about. Again, Light My Fire, the, the longer version, is particularly impressive with everyone getting like a, like a good jazz band, getting a chance to do solos and yet holding the thing together tightly as Morrison wound the thing through his charisma. And it still is one of the great singles. I'll never forget as a kid the first time I heard it. It was utterly unforgettable, uh, Light My Fire, and deserves to be recognized as such. And then lastly, the end, perhaps the masterpiece, um, because it's universal. Morrison finally, in the simplicity of it, which is seen as simple-minded by its critics, which is wrong, in the simplicity of it, as, as, as Morrison said, he was hiding something complicated. There's the Oedipal story being told here, but as Morrison said, at first it seems to be just about losing 
a girl. And Fag Morrison wrote it about a high school breakup of his sweetheart from high school. But there's more to it than that. There's also this, the very strong hints of the loss of childhood and indeed of an era. There's a reason that, that Morrison's friend, Francis Ford Coppola, who he knew from UCLA Film School, where Morrison and Manzarek met, Morrison was a failing film student, Manzarek a more successful one, and they knew Coppola, and when it came time for him to make his masterpiece Apocalypse Now at the beginning, he chose the end of his friend Morrison to describe the entire Vietnam era. Morrison so encapsulates and universalizes losing a girl to be losing your childhood, to be losing your soul in Vietnam. And that works perfectly. There is beneath the simplicity in Morrison here a decided universality. Much like George Harrison, who kept aspiring to the universal, it's in the simplicity of the end that Morrison finally attains it. Some of his later more pretentious work in Soft Parade doesn't hit it because it's self-consciously trying to be intellectual, where the simplicity of the end, as was true for, say, Harrison in Here Comes the Sun or While My Guitar Gently Weeps. With the end, Morrison achieves the simplicity and doing so actually achieves his intellectualism, ironically, that he's been looking for and the universal in doing so. This is one of the great debut albums ever made, one of the most creative and ambitious records ever made. And before the excesses of the Doors rather quickly got to both Morrison and the band, you're going to see one of the best bands ever at the height of their creative powers. And what a way to go out. But giving you albums must listen to you must listen to before you die. The eponymous record, The Doors, from January 1967, one of the greatest records ever made. And a good way to end our troll through Freedom, the 1960s, and LA bands you really ought to listen to. Thanks very much. Hope you enjoyed this. And on to the rest of the week's newsletter.